welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Micah Engel, a doctoral student in psychology at the University of West Georgia, and a research news writer for the Madden America website. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sebastian Grant. Dr. Grant is an educator and theoretical psychologist who currently directs a master's program in critical psychology and human services at Prescott College in Arizona. She received her own master's degree as well as her PhD at the University of West Georgia's Psychology, Consciousness, and Society program. An integrative thinker, Dr. Grant combines humanistic, existential, Buddhist, transpersonal, and critical social perspectives in her unique approach to psychology. Her work includes both academic outreach, such as the recent book chapter titled Addressing the Empty Self Towards Socially Just Subjectivities, as well as engaging students in the classroom. Dr. Grant teaches according to principles of collaboration and transformation, rather than simply passing along information. Central to her work, both theoretically and in the classroom, are notions of compassion, morality, social justice, attitudes toward death, ethics around technology, and critical reflexivity. Welcome, Dr. Grant. Thank you for that introduction, and thank you for having me. No problem. Happy to be talking to you. Um, So, just to start, could you tell us about how you came to psychology? particularly the the integrative and the critical kind of psychology that you do? Yeah, I think, you know, like a lot of people, um, I came to psychology because I had personal experiences with, um, with the suffering caused by psychological struggles. I grew up with a single mom who had um, bipolar disorder, chronic depression, and um, I was super close to her and loved her very much and saw... Um, the impact on her life and also on my own life. Um, And I think that was what made me interested in going into psychology as an undergrad student, which I did. And then I went to Warren Wilson College for undergrad, which was um, maybe not as progressive as University of West Georgia ended up being, but was already looking at psychology from more alternative lenses. And so I got a good foundation there. And then after graduating with my undergrad degree, I got a job um, at a shelter serving people experiencing homelessness in Asheville, North Carolina. And that's where I started to think about critical psychology, even though at the time I had no idea what that was. I didn't have the language for it, but I started to think I was planning to go into a master's program the following year for counseling. And I was thinking, um, what would my work look like with these people, with the people I was serving at the shelter um, in a counseling role? And I just started to be so frustrated by so many of their struggles and, and, and how I saw those struggles embedded in these larger systems of oppression and injustice. um, And that that was really causing a lot of these struggles. And I thought as a counselor, what am I going to have to offer these people? Um, you know, yes, you're experiencing depression and anxiety and maybe um, self-medicating through substances. And these all seem like very natural reactions to this to this um, uh, situation that you're in that's not your fault. You know, I, I also started to think about my mom and how she had been a single mom experiencing poverty and had tried numerous times to get support from, you know, through government aid, support to go back to college, support for childcare, all of these things, and wasn't able to receive any of those um, and how much that contributed to her struggles. And so, you know, I was looking for alternative um, orientations to therapy, and I found University of West Georgia, which had a great humanistic existential program. I went there, and while doing um, the master's in counseling, I was exposed to critical social theory and critical psychology, and by the time I um, finished my master's program, my focus had really shifted toward the more macro level at looking at um, these systems that humans are embedded in and how we can work to, to change or alter those systems. So I shifted and, and did my PhD more in um, 
more in critical psychology, but still blending in existentialism, Buddhist psychology, transpersonal psychology, humanistic. So since then, um, you've actually established a master's degree program, which I mentioned in the intro, in critical psychology and human services at Prescott, um, which you're the current director of. Um, so you can you tell us about, so, you know, you've talked a little bit about some of what you saw that was wrong with psychology and, and maybe some of the things that needed to be addressed. Uh, can you tell us about why you wanted to start this program? Yeah. So first of all, I was hired at um, Prescott College to to be a critical psychologist to teach in their undergraduate program, which is also very critically focused. So the, the existing program was very much aligned. Um, and I have been aware that there are very few graduate programs in critical psychology that focus on critical psychology in the United States. And at the time of um, developing this program, there were none specifically in critical psychology at the master's level that we could find. And for me, this is a, um, there's a huge need for this. I personally believe that all psychology should be critical psychology and that eventually, you know, I would really love to see critical psychology cease to be a separate field and just be integrated but for now, it's not, and a lot of people still don't know what it is, but I think that there's um, that there's a craving for it, that there's an attunement to, you know, wanting to do psychology um, from a perspective of, of understanding, you know, conditions of oppression and social um, justice, and so, so I felt like there was a need for this, and um, when I spoke with um, Ellen Abel, who's the director of the undergraduate psychology program at Prescott College about this, she had been feeling the same way and thinking about this for a few years. And so she was really supportive. And I felt like I had the support from the administration to do it. And it felt like the time. And so we started it. But we also wanted it to be a practical degree. I am more of a theoretical psychologist. That's where I hang out. But I also really believe that we have to find places for this theory to meet the world and to and to impact people through practice. Um, and, you know, this is one of the places human services and social services are closely aligned. So this is mostly um, designed for people who are going to be working in the nonprofit sector, supporting individuals in community-based capacities um, um, through that nonprofit work. So we wanted people to be able to do that work from a, from a critically informed place that would allow them to understand. I, I mean, a lot of this came from my own experience of working in this, in this homeless shelter, right? So that people who are doing this kind of work would have this perspective, would be able to work with clients from a, from a place of understanding how their struggles are embedded in these larger systems and not placing so much of the um, kind of the blame and the responsibility on the individual um, for the situation that they're in so that hopefully they can be more compassionate. Hopefully they can be more respectful, more validating of people's experiences and more creative as they look for, um, you know, solutions to help address their struggles. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious. You've said a couple times that nobody really knows what critical psychology is. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot as sort of being the voice who has to define it. Um, but, you know, my, my next question is about what sort of things do you teach in this program? So maybe we could get at it a little bit through that. I think you want me to, to define critical psych. Um, so I'm going to try and do that for you. <laughs> the Sebastian version of critical psychology. Um, so the way I understand critical psychology is that it, it has um, kind of two branches or two um, areas of focus. The first one is really applying critical theory, critical social theory lenses to the field of psychology, to look at the ways that psychology as a, as a field, as a very powerful force, absorbs different social values, ideologies, interacts with those, um, perpetuates them, and how those um, either contribute to well-being or contribute to greater suffering and and you know additionally how we can do psychology maybe in a way that um, that's more effective for for facilitating well-being um, so specifically looking at things like how psychology has absorbed neoliberal values neoliberal ideologies and things like that and how that then can um, 
reinforce psychology being done from a hyper-individualistic perspective and sometimes create harm through that. Um, the other branch, which I think is is where I focus more, is using critical theories and psychological theories to critique societies and to think about how they are contributing to human flourishing or hindering human flourishing, contributing to suffering, and thinking about how we could envision societal change that would better support the flourishing of humans. So, you know, for me, if psychologists really care about supporting the well-being of humans, we have to look at the societies that those humans live in. And we also have to get involved in the project of creating more just and equitable and healthy societies. Um, otherwise, we end up kind of putting duct tape on people, and which they need often, you know, because we can't fix the world overnight, um, but then sending people back into these really harmful systems. Um, so that's, that's, that's my understanding of critical psych. Well, thank you. I mean, that was an excellent definition as far as I'm concerned. Um, so that does lead into my next question, which is um, about the program that you're the director of, uh, which incorporates I'm assuming a lot of what you're saying. Um, so, what what goes on in this program? What what kind of classes do you teach there? What is it? How does it look like when you bring these things into the classroom? Yeah. So we try to provide students with a really strong um, theoretical orientation of critical psychology, and then also with um, skills. In the human services, things like grant writing and fundraising, program development, transformative leadership, helping skills, things like that. Um, so students can choose, they have to take, you know, a certain number of professional skills courses, for instance, and they can choose within those which ones they want to focus on. Um, as far as the theory classes go, like I said, we have a, um, try to focus on providing a good foundation. So students take um concepts of critical psychology, which covers the field of critical psychology specifically. And then they also take a class called um, Critical Theoretical and Historical Foundations of Psychology, which is basically a history of psych class from a critical perspective. So we really investigate psychology as a field, um, and, you know, and sort of the historical development of psychology from a critical perspective. How has it developed along with um, other societal trends? I have a kind of question, which is just specifically when we talk about things like um, critical theory, critical social theory, are we talking about, um, and, and sort of the developments that psychology has, you know, had historically and how it's maybe lined up with certain social values and all that kind of stuff. Are we talking about things like racism? Are we talking about things like sexism? What exactly just to be a little specific about it, what's the what's the focus there, if you could say anything to that? Well, I think that certainly we talk about um, racism and sexism and homophobia. I think that those are all embedded in um, larger systems of power and oppression and hierarchy. And so I think that, you know, a lot of what we're looking at is how that plays out. Who, you know, who, who is being, we're always thinking about who is being served, who is being harmed, who has the power, who's getting to decide what's normal and abnormal, what's pathological, who's deciding what health is, um, and, and what are those, um, definitions and practices, um, you know, again, how are those supporting the status quo? How are those harming different populations? And so, yeah, we look at all of these ways that it plays out. I mean, one of the new courses being offered at Prescott College that I'm really excited about is a critical disability studies course, which is, you know, again, looking at how um, how these issues of power and oppression and colonization play out um, when we're looking at people who are differently abled. How do your students receive these this this training? These kind of ideas um do you see a, do you see them carrying it forward in their work yeah i think you know one of the things i've really been struck by when i speak to incoming students is that almost all of them say some version of this is what i've been feeling this is what i've been intuiting this is what i've been looking for but i didn't know it existed as a field and um, so we are getting a lot of students right now who are already doing some kind of work in the human services or social services sector. And, um, you know, they're working with 
clients. And I think that they're like I did when I was, when I initially started working with clients, them, they're seeing how these struggles are embedded in these larger systems um, of power and oppression and injustice. And they're looking for ways to understand that more deeply, to have language, to talk about it, um, to have research tools and practices to practice from a more, um, what I would consider a more ethical perspective. I should mention that we have two tracks. We have a um, an academic track and a professional track. And so the academic track is really for students who are thinking that they want to go on to doctoral work. Um, and those students um, take more academic research and writing courses and less professional skills courses. And then their capstone is an, is an academic article that's ready for publication. Um, most of our students do the professional track and that um, ends in a capstone where they do a practicum with a nonprofit of their choice. And through that practicum, they also um, have weekly assignments where they're integrating theory and reflecting on what they're doing in their practicum from this theoretical perspective and really seeing what is revealed in that work through these theoretical lenses um, and what you know, what they believe that the organization that they're working with is doing really well, how they would um, change things if they had the option. And so, um, so we have so far, we've, we've had so many amazing students. Um, we have a student who just graduated who for a long time has worked as a sign language interpreter in the deaf community. And through integrating um, the theory from this program, she's gotten really interested in the ways that the deaf community, and in particular, she defines the deaf community as um, people who use sign language, who are hearing impaired and also use sign language, um, how limited their um, access to mental health services are, and also how um, skewed those are. And so she wrote a really amazing article about how few mental health providers are able to use sign language to communicate with clients, how few interpreters there are who have, um, you know, mental health language background who can do that interpretation, and how this leads to um, a huge overdiagnosis of pathology for people in the deaf community because there's cultural differences because they often have to express themselves either through um, writing or through... Um, you know, through reading lips and speaking, but that's like a second language for them in many cases. They also, she shared, often don't acquire language until they're, until they start elementary school, which I had no idea. So, so they have late, um, late acquisition of language, which changes the way that they use language. That's often seen as, um, like symptoms of, of schizophrenia because they'll use language in really fragmented ways. And so she's really focused on, you know, how she can bring this critical work um, to kind of decolonize mental health work with the deaf community and, and sensitize people to the specific um, sort of cultural issues and challenges of working with that community. That's one example. Um, I have a student who has been, um, uh, he's a labor union president, I think for uh he's a he he works in the public school system as an educator and so he's been doing this for many years and now he's um using he's he's in the master's program and he's looking at uh labor union organizing and how psychology has really failed to um look at labor unions at all um even though occupational industrial and occupational psychology has done a lot of work on the other side and sort of how to support employers to get what they um, want and need from their employees but um, and and how to do that in a way that maybe is um, more beneficial and less damaging to the employees but it really has done very little work on how to support um, labor unions and looking at the positive benefits that people who participate in labor unions receive both, you know, financially, but also in terms of mental health and um, enjoyment of their work. And, um, and so he's trying to do, a, you know, a research project where he applies psychological theories to labor union organizing. But it again, just shows, you know, we started to dig into this and it's like, um, who, who pays for um, psychological research on things relating to career and occupation. Um, it's usually employers. And so all of that research ends up being skewed toward uh, benefiting employers rather than employees. Again, even though um, 
it's often looking at how to make work conditions better for employees. It's still looking at, you know, how to, how to do that in a way that increases the bottom line that doesn't challenge um, what employers want to do or how they do it. And so, um, so he's, you know, carrying that work forward through his research, but also in his actual labor union organizing work. Um, you, you recently wrote a, a book chapter, which I, I mentioned before, addressing the empty self towards socially just subjectivities. Um, and in there, you said that there's a contradiction in how we're living, particularly in Western societies, uh, with the aims of social justice and well-being. Can you talk about what that contradiction is? Yeah, so in the chapter, um, I actually take it a little bit farther than being a, co- a contradiction how we're living to a contradiction really in the construction of our subjectivities, um, which of course influences how we're living, but it's deeper than that. And so one of the things that I focus on in this chapter is that even when we envision living in more ethical and just ways, even when that's what we want and that's what we believe in and that's what aligns with our values, we have a very hard time actually living those out. Um, and, and I make the argument that that's because the way that our subjectivity is constructed under capitalism and neoliberalism um, is in a very individualistic, um, competitive, and narcissistic way that is in tension with social justice. So even when we even when we want to be more um, more equitable, for instance, we um, have these reactions. You know, e- even in myself, I mean, I notice I notice moments when my actions don't line up with my values, and I've really thought a lot about this. Why Why is that? Why, in the spur of the moment, do I often act in a way that I don't believe is right? Um, and I think that that these subjectivity constructions are a big part of that. And so, um, so what I argue in this chapter is that if we really want to um, support greater social justice, we're going to have to back up a little bit and also um, attend to our subjectivity constructions. Because they're constructions, I believe we can deconstruct and reconstruct them. Um, And so I'm really interested in what kinds of constructions would better support both individual and societal well-being and what psychology can do to support those. When you say construction of subjectivity, can you explain just briefly what you mean by that? how it gets constructed. Because, you know, I, I can imagine some people listening to this and saying, like, what are you talking about? We're, we're biological, we're biological beings. And yeah, absolutely. So um, the, there are many theories of that, that, that play around with the construction of subjectivity. One of the ways that I understand it is that humans have a multitude of capacities available to them. Those are all part of our nature. And so, um, different societies that we live in, different languages that we acquire, even, you know, even different families that we are a part of and different systems affect what gets highlighted and what gets minimized of our, of our array of capacities. And so, um, I believe that under capitalism, neoliberalism, consumerism, materialism, this kind of, um, uh, water that we're all swimming in these days, that the capacities in us that get nurtured are um, individualism, selfishness, competitiveness, greed, and then we mistake those as our human nature. We It's easy to do that because they are part of our human nature. They are things available to us, but they're not the only ways that we can be. And so, you know, I don't think societies can construct ways of being that aren't potentialities for us, but they do nurture different potentialities and um, different environments, different social environments, different institutional environments, different psychological environments um, can nurture different capacities. And we also have capacities for compassion and collaboration and care and generosity and courageous altruism and those could be those could also be nurtured and supported and i think that those are really being minimized in our society to the point that we don't we don't even sometimes believe that those are capacities that come as naturally to us as the other ones um, and so i think one of the impacts that this has is that we believe that we have to force ourselves to be good that we have to try and create 
ethical systems and algorithms that predetermine which action we should take in different scenarios. And then we have to police ourselves and others into doing them because we're essentially acting against um, our own best interest, our own individualism and our own greedy nature. And we sort of see this false dichotomy between what's good for the individual and what's good for society. Um, I'm getting a little on a little bit of a tangent now, but I see this as being like, for instance, within capitalism, we overemphasize what we believe will contribute to the individual good. Whereas in other political economic systems, maybe like communism or socialism, sometimes we overemphasize what's good for the social good. Um, And for me, these are completely false dichotomies. If we realize deep interconnectedness, we can't think about it that way. So while on the surface, it may seem that we can act in ways that are only good for the individual or society, eventually those things will be bad for both of us. If they're not good for both, then they're they're really bad for both. You talk about how there is a need for a top-down approach, which I assume would mean like, um, you know, changing social, political, economic structures which would then change people's subjectivities. Um, but you said that it, it's equally necessary for us to have a bottom-up approach. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what you mean by these two things. Yeah, so I often see um, that different fields work on very different levels and they're not looking at the holistic picture. So I think that fields like sociology... Um, political science, economics, look at um, how these larger systems that we're embedded in um, do create our subjectivities or shape our subjectivities. Um, and how, you know, if we want if we want different kinds of humans, we need to change the systems that they live in. Um, and I certainly think that that is part of the picture, as I've just explained. You know, I believe that, that we are largely constructed to, to, um, in relation to the societies that we're in. But again, we bring a lot to the societies that we find ourselves in. We are constructed in particular ways. And I think that if we don't address that and do work at the individual and personal level, then even if we change these larger systems, we end up uh, recreating what we knew before. And so um, I talk about in the chapter, I talk about David Loy, who's one of my favorite um, Buddhist philosophers. He, he does a lot with like Buddhist um, critical theory. And he talks about the three poisons, which are, you know, a Buddhist concept that um, through the misidentification of the self as separate in Buddhism, um, this leads to the three poisons, which are greed, ignorance, and aggression. And so greed is, you know, our kind of inherent um, uh, competitiveness, right? And fear, um, thinking that there aren't enough resources to go around and that I have to make sure that I have uh, mine so that I'm safe. Um, ignorance is really the ignorance of our true interconnected self. So seeing ourselves as separate, which makes us feel empty and insecure and lonely. Um, and then aggression, you know, the ways aggression is, um, um, plays out through greed, but it's also things that we're just resistant to things that scare us. So things that we have an aversion to, which creates a lot of, um, a lot of tension. And so David Loy argues that if we don't address these within ourselves, then it doesn't matter which systems we create, we will bring these into it and we'll end up corrupting even the most beautiful, well-thought-out, compassionate systems with these um, underlying struggles. And so, you know, I see this also, and, you know, I think that we've seen, like, for instance, in in, um, experiments with things like communism and socialism, we've seen radical changes in societal structures, and then we've seen, um, I believe, um, the same issues of you know, of greed and aggression and these things manifest in those systems and really corrupt what um, what the vision was meant to be so that they don't end up playing out the way that people thought they would before you put actual humans in there, right? So, this is another thing I've thought about a lot is like, why, why do we have these really beautiful system, even capitalism on its surface, you know, if you read sort of <laughs> the early capitalist text, it's like, oh yeah, that seems like maybe it would work. Then you put real humans into it and it doesn't work the way that um, that it was envisioned to. And so this is where I think we also have to be doing the personal work of um, dealing with um, emptiness, lack, um, 
the the you know the the separate bounded self, the misidentification with the self, um, and the fears that this brings, and the desires that these bring. Um, if we're going to be able to live live out any of our values, um, live out any of our visions for a better world. And so I think that, you know, as psychologists, we need to be helping the people that we work with. Um, but we also need to be doing this ourselves. Because if we aren't doing this kind of personal work ourselves, we are more likely to perpetuate harmful values that we absorb through our work, again, even if we have the best intentions not to do that. You call psychology out for being complicit, basically, in, in encouraging some of this, these tendencies like narcissism, like individualism, um, greed, making it more difficult to live out a lot of these social justice ideals, right, and, and these um, positive social changes. So I'm, I'm curious if you could say more about how you see psychology contributing negatively in that way. Yeah, so um, I think that for me, these critiques start, um, you know, as as far back as Eric Fromm, who was looking at um, the ways that society had absorbed, at at the time, had absorbed um, capitalistic values and how those were negatively impacting the well-being of the people who lived within them. So this is certainly not a new critique. Um, But there's a couple of different, a handful of different ways that I see this as being harmful. The first is that um, this hyper-individualistic notion of the self um, antagonizes our feelings of emptiness and lack, which many um, branches of psychology, many thinkers, um, but also um, people from different wisdom traditions, um, philosophies have really identified as the source of a lot of our suffering. And so, you know, this 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 feeling of separateness, of of emptiness, of lack of meaning, lack of connection. And so um, the way that psychology understands the self and understands health to be kind of this um, reification and bolstering up of the separate, of the ego, um, antagonizes some of that, those underlying um, uh, feelings of emptiness that that lead to suffering. So that's one of them. Um, Another challenge that I see is um, in particular thinking about you know, psychology is such a broad field. We often think so much about psychology in terms of therapy and psycho- psychopathology and these things. It's much bigger than that. But in that realm, um, mainstream psychology tends to identify struggle as being located within the individual and that that's where the um, the transformation or the healing needs to happen. So if you have depression, it's your depression. This is how certain things influence you. If you want to get over your depression, you need to seek support. You need to go to therapy. You need to do the work. You need to do the self-discovery, all of this. You know, the same thing with um, with with other struggles, with anxiety and, and different types of struggles. And so um, in one sense, there's, especially, you know, with humanistic and positive psychology, there's this... Um, the sense of empowerment that comes from this, you know, what you, you, you've had all of these experiences in, in life and, and, and now you're struggling, but you have the potential within you to overcome these challenges, to be resilient, to figure out how to orient yourself in a way that's going to be healthier. And so that's, that's a, that's a great thing um, on the surface, but when we don't look at the way that those struggles are embodied in, in larger systems, um, we end up kind of creating these impossible demands on people um, to be healthy and happy. And I think that there's a lot of stigma and shame around the failure to do that. So especially even with, I think with positive psychology, we've started to pathologize normalcy. So if you're not really blissed out all the time, if you're not just like, you know, manifesting your inner butterfly and like vibrating with the joy of the universe, now um, you're seen as, um, you know, impaired and deficient and, 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 and there's sort of, you know, a moral imperative to be as happy and successful um, and, you know, authentically unique as you can. Um, so I think that that's, that's harmful to individuals because it really sets us up for feeling like um, failures and for not getting the support that we need. And on the third level, which is a, you know, a larger societal level, I think that psychology ends up propping up systems of injustice and, um, and um, ill health by covering over problems and, and saying that they belong to the individual. So for instance, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is resiliency literature. 
resiliency research specifically um, when it comes to populations who are um, who are being oppressed and stigmatized. Um, so I have a, a grad student who's been working on uh, working with resiliency literature on um, African American women and kind of looking at this intersectional oppression of um, sexism and racism. And so much of the literature really um, and, and the research really praises African American women for being so incredibly resilient, which is great. Um, and also looks at ways to help African American women be more resilient in the face of these intersectional challenges. Um, none of the articles that I've reviewed with this student talk about um, the need for psychology to get involved in addressing and eradicating racism. So we're like, how can we help, you know, how can we help women of color better deal with racism is where psychology, you know, locates the the, the challenge or the task rather than <laughs> how do we get rid of racism so that people aren't having to work so incredibly hard just to survive in these unjust systems? And so, again, I think this is where psychology um, misrecognizes the location of the problem or maybe, you know, I don't, I don't think that there's like anyone behind the, the, the curtains like wahaha intentionally misleading people but it certainly does again support the status quo in this way so it's these internalized values that maybe we're just not thinking about but it really um it it prevents us from from identifying these problems as being social problems that we need to get involved um in changing you're also interested in sort of a positive vision for who we can be how psychology can be um so you talk about sort of alternative forms of ethics and subjectivity, ways of living, what, like I mentioned earlier, around sort of compassion, interconnectivity. So can you explain a little bit about your approach there? Yeah. So first of all, um, I want to say that I think that re-envisioning psychology and subjectivity and ethics and all of this needs to be, you know, a collaborative process. I'm, I am really trying to, um, to promote more dialogue, to get more people talking about it. I certainly don't think that there is one answer. And I think that we're going to need so many visions for, um, that we do need so many visions for how to live, um, better lives and how to have better societies. I come to this work, um, from a, a, a foundation that's heavily influenced by Buddhism and wisdom traditions. And so um, one of the things that I see that could be helpful is um, incorporating compassion and interconnectivity practices, that this is a way, you know, Buddhism has a very um, well-developed, long theoretical and practical tradition specifically for working with re reconstructing the self to be less individualistic. This is what it's been doing for thousands of years. And so for me, this is a pretty um, a natural integration. Again, I'm sure there are many others. Um, the thing that I think is really important with this work is that we don't just figure out um, better ways to live with our brains because we do that all the time. Buddhism argues that it's not um, enough to understand things with our mind, we actually need transformation in who we are. We need transformation in our subjectivities. Otherwise, we have the same operating program, but we're trying to make it do different things, um, and it just doesn't work. And so, from from this perspective, we have to participate in practices that actually do get deep, get deep into our hearts, get deep into our senses of self, so that we, when we are put on the spot, our um, instinct is to act from a place of compassion and interconnectivity, and our instinct is to act from a place um, that's going to create the greatest well-being for the whole, for ourselves and for the world. And, and this requires that we do the work, not just with our brains, which is hard for me because I'm such a theory person and I'm the worst meditator. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to practice. There are, um, there are meditations, there are meditations on compassion and interconnectivity that you can do, but there's also, um, I really love um, the idea of service as a transformational process. So getting involved in doing volunteering and doing service work, um, you know, getting involved in your community for some people, getting involved in spiritual or religious communities, getting involved in um, prayer, thinking about the ways that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, 
um, finding opportunities for awe for moments when we are con- confronted, when we come up against the, the, um, the limits of who we are as individuals and realize that we are part of these larger, you know, in- deeply interconnected, inseparable part of these larger systems. And that can create a shift. Some really interesting research around awe as being this moment when we're confronted with something that challenges our way of believing or understanding something so much that it kind of shatters it and we have to reconstruct a new way and so when we when when we can find contact points for sort of transcendent awe i think that that really has the power to to get in there and do some reconstruction work but we have to first of all we have to believe that this is even a worthy project um, we have to, you know, m- maybe convince others that this is a worthy project to even take up these kinds of practices. Um, and I think we can do that through the head. We can do that through showing research that shows, for instance, that compassion practices um, increase areas related to joy in the brain activity, uh, decrease um, activity in areas of the brain related to depression. We can use that kind of research to convince people that this is a, a worthy cause. Um, but then we're going to have to actually uh, actually do the work. So in my classes, we, we do read a lot of um, theory and talk a lot about the benefits of this stuff, but we do a lot of meditating in our classes. And we do, you know, I have assignments where I ask students to go forth and do so many random acts of kindness for others and keep a kindness journal and think about the ways that um, they feel. You know, I think this is really important to attend to the ways that we feel when we're confronted with suffering from others and the ways that we feel when we're confronted with the joy of others immediately shows us that we are not separate. Um, And, you know, how do we feel when we're able to contribute to the well-being of someone else? it's almost always joyful, you know, it's addictive. So I tell students, go and experiment, see what it feels like to do nice things for other people. And, you know, after that, you can do what you want with it. But for the most part, students are like, wow, this is, this is addictive. Now I just want to keep doing nice things, you know? Um, so yeah, finding, finding ways to, um, actually practice things. I have, I've been teaching this class called, um, doing good, compassion, and sustainable caring, which is really about how we can participate in work, social justice work, advocacy work, counseling, anything where we're confronted with um, suffering, the suffering of others, the suffering of the world, without being overcome by um, by despair and, um, and anger and hopelessness. And one of the things that we do in this class is we start every class by watching a video of someone doing some act of kindness you know we watch a lot of um even like videos of people rescuing animals or um people jumping in front of trains for each other i mean there's all if you if you go down the rabbit hole you can find these things um and i tell them we we need to see examples of this we need to believe that we're capable of this we need to be inspired we watch these videos and they're just you know five minute videos that we start the class with and we're all like crying when the video's over right and feeling so inspired you just want to go out and find some puppies to rescue um and so you know even even really simple practices like that i think can help attune us to how good it feels um to be compassionate and to be of service to others in the world you've also done quite a bit of work on transhumanism could you explain what transhumanism is and sort of where you're how you're coming to it and what you think about it Yeah, so transhumanism refers to theories and technologies that aim to um, transcend or evolve the human beyond what would be possible without the aid of science and technology. So things like radical life extension through either ending the aging process or uploading our consciousness onto a non-biological substrate. Things like morphological freedom, which is the idea that we should be able to embody any physical form that we want. We shouldn't be limited to the human form. Um, things like networking our consciousness Um, so that we would have access to other people's consciousness kind of in this really immediate way. Um, Really interesting, a lot of um, really interesting proposals. I am critical of transhumanism. Um, I see it as really an extension of consumerism and um, capitalism and this idea that we should direct our 
development of the self and of, of technology and of things that are available to us um, based on our desire and our fear. So what do we want and what are we afraid of? Um, and I think that transhumanism for me is a, a really interesting example of what happens when we take that to its kind of furthest degree. We have fear of death, so rather than working with death, rather than, you know, thinking about how to create meaningful lives and stuff, we just figure out, try to figure out how to get rid of death. Um, in, in that way, it's really an exaggeration of, desi of desire-driven endeavors. Um, but the problem is that we don't desire things that make us happy often. Desire is not based on, um, is not a good guide to happiness. It's usually, when we think of desire, it's usually hedonic, hedonic desire, kind of base pleasures, or again, things, getting away from things that we're afraid of. Um, and so, I think transhumanism ends up, again, sort of doing what positive psychology does, but to a greater degree now, it makes things like mortality um, an insult and a tragedy. We shouldn't need to die. This is insulting. This is this is horrible. We have to figure out how to get rid of this. And so then we get, I think, even more afraid of it because we're not accepting that it's a natural part of the human experience. So rather than figuring out how we can live the best lives that we can, all of the energy and thought goes into how we can live impossible lives. One of the reasons that I got really interested in transhumanism from a psychological perspective in addition to thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be human if we don't have mortality? What does it mean to be human if we're networked or if we don't have physical bodies? I mean, there's so many interesting questions. Um, is because transhumanists also are really relying on research from the field of psychology to think about what we should target in terms of changes. Um, but psychology hasn't been involved in the conversation. So it's, it's, it's being used, but it's not, um, it's, it's not, intentionally contributing anything. And one of the um, really great examples, I think, um, is that transhumanists often target, when we're thinking about genetic modification of the human, this is another thing that people do, right? Designer babies. What would we, if we wanted to design a perfect person um, that would be, you know, happy and healthy and introversion is often on the chopping block in the transhumanist literature because um, a surface-level reading of psychological research often identifies introversion as being um, connected to higher rates of depression and anxiety and isolation and these sorts of things. If you dig deeper into that research, if it's if it's good research, if it's critical research, um, you know we also start to look at things like um, the fact that we live in a society that really. Um, glorifies extroversion and stigmatizes introversion and that there are other societies where that's not the case you know for instance in japan and in sweden um, introverts introversion tends to be more valued and extroversion is sometimes not as valued but because psychology is not involved in these conversations it can't add that kind of nuance and so we're talking about potentially permanently um impacting the genetic makeup of humans based on this misunderstood um, and non-critical psychological research, which I think is really important and also really scary. So what's next for you? Um, that's an excellent question. <laughs> uh, for the last couple of years, I've really been focusing most of my energy on getting um, the master's program established and running, but I've got kind of a slew of things on the back burner that I would like to bring forward. Um, one of them is, well, they're all really related to everything that we've been talking about today, but one of them is I'm really interested in how compassion practices can support um, social justice work, particularly including um, like uh, what's, what's often called compassion fatigue, but I believe is really more of a empathy fatigue. Um, and so I, as I mentioned, I've been teaching this class on compassion and sustainable um, caring. That's been my my sort of first foray into this is um, talking with students. And this class in particular, um, many of my classes are more like collaborative learning experiences. I don't necessarily go in as like an expert, you know, but, but this class more than any other one, because I don't have the answer to this. I don't know. I'm still overcome with, with um, hopelessness and despair and rage often in the face of, of uh, s s s s s suffering and atrocities in the world. Um, 
so that's been one of the things that I've been doing, but I'm, I'm really interested in doing more research, um, having people who are doing social justice work, activism work, going through a compassion training, um, for instance, like the one that Emery does, the mindfulness-based compassion training. I'm also really interested um, in... I've been reading this book by Daniel Kahneman. I think it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in this book, he argues that humans don't make rational decisions. Um, and he doesn't have a lot of hope that we can get better at that. You know, it, the, the, my, um, my understanding of what he says is, you know, we really, um, we make decisions based on all kinds of things on, on intuition, on what we grew up believing with our families, on, you know, knee jerk fears, all kinds of things, but not so much on, you know, what we have really thought about. And again, this goes back to what I was talking about with, um, you know, the fact that we can have different beliefs and values, but when it comes down to it, sometimes we act in totally different ways and we can be mystified by our own actions when we try to explain them to ourselves or others. Um, it's often hard. And so I read, I've been reading this book and I'm like, oh, well, what, well, what can we do? You know, he says, well, we can try to make better rational decisions, but we've only got a tiny bit of wiggle room there. Because it's not what we do. So what I've really been interested in is how we can make better irrational or irrational decisions. How we can make better irrational decisions. And for me, I think this is, again, tied into reconstructing our subjectivities to be more compassionate and interconnected so that when we make decisions without thinking them through, without relying on um, all of that rationality, we'll make better decisions for, um, for the holistic um, well-being, you know. So I'd like to do some research around that. I haven't figured out exactly what that's going to look like yet. Um, and then a final thing that I've been thinking about is um, how psychology has really um, taken up the role in American society of religion, I think, and I'm not the first one to, to um, identify that. People look to it for guidance on how to live a good life, how to live the best life that they can. Um, and I think that it's playing an incredibly powerful role in um, people's lives and decisions about how to, you know, how to parent, how to relate to their partners, how to um, how to govern, how to manage, um, um, you know, what what we do when people transgress against society, how we deal with crime and things like this. Um, but psychology hasn't really taken that responsibility on. Um, again, with a lot of intention and thought or psychologists, I guess, because we are, you know, it's, it's made of people. It's not a disembodied field. Um, so that's something that I've been thinking about, too, is how can we really take up this um, position that we're in for thinking about how we can be leaders of the cultivation of the good of, of um, you know, how we can be moral and ethical leaders, um, you know, and have that based on what I see as more humanistic and scientific understandings of um, what's good for individuals and societies. Um, that's a big project, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see how far that one gets. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.